And all right, quick, quick segue. Please grab your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, page 993 in the Blue Pew Bible. You can follow along there. Um, we are down to the wire in this series. Uh, two Sundays left, going verse by verse through the letter that Paul has written to Timothy. And um, what we said last week is um, Paul has begun his conclusion. And we are in the midst now of unpacking his conclusion in this letter. And he does what good conclusions do. They reaffirm the most important points as he finishes. And so last week he gave the final warning. It wasn't the first warning. We've seen it all throughout the letter. But the final warning about false teachers in the church. How do you spot a false teacher? The content of their teaching and the conduct of their character. That's what we saw last week. This week and then next, he'll give this final word to infuse courage to young Timothy, to stay the course, to finish well. And so there's a phrase we're going to see this morning that is probably the most popular phrase in the whole letter. In some ways, it encompasses the whole letter, but it very much speaks in this passage. And the phrase is this, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. So what does it look like to fight the good fight? Well, before we read it, let me right off the bat, before we dig in, just see that there are two ways you can get that wrong, very wrong. First is to not fight. The first way to get it wrong is to not fight, to, to live your life in such a way where you are unwilling to step up, where you can say in, in your life that you lack the courage to fight, because as we all know, it's easier to not fight the good fight of faith in the Christian life. So the first way is to not fight. The second way is to fight the wrong fight. Where you do muster up the courage, you got the passion, you're willing to step up, and you give it all you got, but then you realize tragically at some point in your Christian life, you've been fighting the wrong fight all along. It reminds me of um, a social media post I saw earlier this year. Maybe you saw this. It was from a new college professor. And this professor was teaching his first 8 a.m. class. For those of you who went to college, do you remember the 8 a.m. classes? Like in college, you actually thought that was early, all right? And, and, it, and if I remember, at least when I was registering for classes, they were always the last to fill up. Because nobody wanted to take the 8 a.m. class. Well, this new, newly minted professor shows up for his first class, 40 students registered, and at 8 a.m., no one shows up, Ofer, and he's sitting there, discouraged, deciding, what do I do, do I just go home, not say anything, play it cool, and just try again next class, but he doesn't want to go down without a fight, you could say. So he works up the courage to send the whole class an email and be honest about how hurtful that is to risk being vulnerable with college students. That is a risk. And he writes this, Hi everyone, I'm sitting here in an empty classroom. If nobody shows up in the next five minutes, I will leave. But I would love to start a conversation about how I could get more of you to show up. Please reply to me with your thoughts. One minute later, he gets a reply. 
And if you've ever sent an email that you've been vulnerable with, right, a little emotion in it, your heart's kind of skipping when you see that there's a response that has come in, right? And so he sees the response come in, and he opens the email. Professor, we think you might be in the wrong room. Indeed, he was. The entire class was sitting right next door. And at that point, he wanted to go home, but for a different reason. (laughs) Christians can look back on their life and grieve that they didn't have the courage to fight the good fight of faith. Still others can pour themselves out, again, their entire lives, just to find out at some point they've been fighting the wrong fight. So how is Timothy? How can we fight the good fight of the faith? That's what we're going to dig into. We're going to be covering verses 11 through 16 in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But we're going to read it a couple verses at a time, starting with 11 in the first half of 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith. What we're going to see is we're going to see uh, uh, three tandems that Paul's going to give in these kind of series of exhortations and charges he's giving. Three kind of tandems that will help you fight the good fight of the faith. Starting with number one, flee and pursue. Flee and pursue. So at the end of last week's sermon, I said that when you live a life that is marked by contentment in Christ, true contentment in Christ, you can embrace both what you've been freed from and what you've been freed into. So from a theological standpoint, what that means is that to be in Christ is to be freed from sin and the power of the bondage that sin has over you. But that's not all. It's not all the gospel does. It also frees you to something, to a life of godliness. So to say that practically, the day-to-day Christian life is not just about the things you say no to, but it's also about the things you say yes to. When you have a singular aim to glorify God in your life, it empowers you to say both no and yes. It gives you a focused vision. You know, in business, they say the most effective leaders are those who are able to keep focused on a singular vision, block out all the distractions, all the ways they could go. They are laser-focused on a singular vision. They're able to bring other people with them. That is the most effective leader. They know what to say no to. They know what to say yes to and move forward with conviction. And if you think about it, uh, I think many people boil down the Christian life to all the things you have to say no to. At the Christian life, is just this list of things you can't do anymore. And you just got to learn to say no. I'm telling you, that is a miserable and joyless pursuit. But on the other hand, this is the, the, the truth that we have to hold together. If you never are mindfully saying no to things in the Christian life, then that is a fruitless pursuit. All right, you with me? If you feel like you, it's all about saying no, that's a joyless pursuit. But if it's never saying no, it's a fruitless pursuit pursuit. Paul is urging Timothy to say both no and yes. What's it look like to fight the good fight of the faith? You got to learn to say no and yes. First, he says to flee these things. Well, your first question might be, what are these things? 
Well, in context, it is the things that the false teachers were guilty of in the passage right before it that we saw last week. Flee faulty doctrine that decenters Christ in the teaching. And flee the faulty character that decenters Christ in your living. Flee the love of money that we saw last week. A love for money that supplants a love for God. And we can only find our contentment in our worth in this world as the world sees us and not in the way God sees us. Flee that mentality. Flee the tendency to get wrapped up in quarrels with other believers. Flee the, the desire to always have dissension and tension and kind of to almost be uh, just, just filled up and energized by dissension with others. Flee that mentality. So that's what it means, I think, in, in the immediate context. I think beyond that, you can broaden that to your entire life. To flee anything that is not glorifying to God. Flee anything that is not glorifying to God. Whether that be in your mindset or in your behavior. And this charge is needed in the conclusion as Timothy wraps up. It's needed for us as we wrap up because we know full well how easy it is to get tangled in the ways of the world when we're immersed in the world. It's so easy, it's actually easier to become a product of your environment than it is not to. Right? It is the natural drift of the ocean to pull you out to sea. When you go in the water, it is the natural drift to pull you out. The only way you will not get pulled out is if you intentionally swim against the current. Otherwise, you'll get swept away. And in the same way, it is the natural drift in our lives to just become that which we're surrounded by. If you do nothing, you'll just start looking like everybody else around you. That is the easy way. It requires an intentional desire to say, I'm going to live a different way. I'm going to swim against the current of this culture. And it's why Paul says, flee. All right, can you do this with me? What do you think of when you hear the word flee? What pictures are in your mind when you're told you need to flee the scene? What are you doing in that moment? Are you casually departing? Are you checking to see if you have everything? Are you trying to find reasons why I don't need to leave right now? Flee these things. Uh, we, we've seen examples of this in Scripture. I, I think um, most clearly we see it in the story of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? Uh, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And upon entering to Egypt, Joseph began working for a man named Potiphar, managing his house. And Potiphar's wife, we find in the text, was attracted to Joseph. And so one day she waits where she finds that it's only her and Joseph in the house. Everybody else is gone. And she takes advantage of this moment and the text says that she grabs him, caught him by the garment, and yelled, lie with me. And here's what the text says. But Joseph lingered around and wondered if he should do it. <laughs> he tried to talk her out of it and said, I don't know what to do. Is that what the text says in Genesis 39? No. It says, quote, but he left his garment and fled and got out of the house. Flee these things. To flee is to take direct and immediate action. Don't let it linger. Don't try and hang around it and talk the temptation down. Don't try to justify yourself. Why I can do this this one time, and I know in general it's not smart, but it's this one time is an exception. No, flee. Get out. 
Church, as I was preparing this, even praying over it this morning, the Spirit impressing on me that some of you in this room this morning, that there's something in your life that you're allowing to linger that will destroy you. A mindset that might lead to an action that some of us are deliberating whether to mess with something or to mess with someone you know you shouldn't. But you're wrestling, you're lingering, trying to see, is there a loophole here? Can I pull this off? Is this okay? Maybe the singular reason why you're here this morning is to hear the reminder from God's word, flee these things. Flee looking outside of Christ to find your value and your joy in this world and the actions that that might lead to if you don't. Hear me this morning. The enemy is lying to you. He's lying to you. You won't find it there wherever you're looking for it outside of Christ. So Paul charges Timothy to say no. But that's not all. He also charges him to say yes, right? Flee and pursue. When you take a, a book off the bookshelf, if you think about your life, your whole life is a bookshelf, and you've got all these books over here, this genre, that genre, that genre, and your whole life is on this bookshelf, and you say, I need to take that out. That's no longer good for me. I can't have it there. It's not just good enough to replace the book you, or, or to take the book down. You have to replace it with something. Every no can be replaced with a better yes. In your life. Flee and pursue. Pursue what? Paul goes through a list of six things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. I won't take the time to go through that six-fold list one by one. In fact, we've hit on many of those things, if not all of them, throughout this series. But Paul is indicating that a pursuit of Christ for the people of God, will produce these things. Do you see it? When you pursue these things, they will be produced in your life. And they often run together. It's not like, here's a list of six, try to get majority. Go for three or four out of the six. He's saying that when you are pursuing Christ, these things run together. It's similar to how he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, of which there's an overlap of terms in this list. Paul says, Timothy, you are to pursue these things because it's possible to produce them with the power of Christ in you. I'm not telling you to do something that you can't do. I'm telling you to pursue that which can be produced in you. And this list, you know, they don't make much of us. They don't make us look great. They give evidence of the power of God at work in us. You see that? This list, they won't make much of you. They will make much of God who works through you. Uh, much like after a, a long winter, when you start to see the buds that form on the branches, that indicates there's life in the trunk. It's evidence. It's fruit. It's a sign. And Paul is always invoking this language of fruit and trees. Uh, Jesus always uh, used these images of agriculture and fruit and trees because it, it not only tells you what it looks like, but it tells you how it happens. Here's what we can affirm. Here's what I want you to affirm this morning. Your desire alone won't work in your life. 
to desire these things alone won't be enough. To want to be righteous, to want to be godly, loving, strong, and gentle requires an intentional pursuit. Again, it's not the natural drift of the ocean for you to become these things in the Christian life. And that's why this whole letter is being written, in a sense. Timothy is to uh, cultivate a healthy church where the pursuit of these things can happen. Uh, God provides. There's a phrase that I want you to know about. It's a phrase called means of grace. Have you heard this phrase? That God gives every believer means of grace that fuel your pursuit of him. Means through which his grace will grow you. The three largest, most prominent you see throughout Scripture are his word, prayer, and a faith community, a a church. Three means of grace that God gives us to grow us. His word, prayer, and a faith community. And so Paul, Timothy, is to cultivate a healthy church in Ephesus because it's through this ministry of the church that people are going to grow. I could put it negatively. I could say that, I, you know, to have the mentality of that, I'm a Christian. I want to grow in godliness, right? Every Christian's going to say that. I, I want to grow in godliness. But you know what? I'm not really reading his word. I'm not praying. I, I'm barely involved in a church. It's, it'd be like planting a flower in your backyard and saying, I want to see that thing grow, but I'm never going to water it. I'm never going to ensure it gets any sunshine. Like, if we want to grow... We then pursue growth. And if we don't pursue growth, we reveal we actually don't want to grow. We want to want to grow. Let me put it another illustration. If somebody said, I want to get in shape, all right? I'm not even going to wait till next January. I'm starting now. Summer's coming. I've got a beach trip planned. I want to get in shape. And they told you that. And you say, well, that's awesome. That's a good desire. So what are you doing for exercise? Nothing. Not really looking to exercise. I just want to be in shape. You say, okay, maybe there's other alternative ways. You must be getting super disciplined with your nutrition then. You're going to watch what you eat like a hawk. No, not changing the diet at all. Not interested in that. Way too tough. But I want to be in shape. Well, if you loved that person, you'd have to sit them down and look them in the eye and say, I'm sorry to tell you, you don't actually want to be in shape. You want to want to be in shape. But there are other desires in your life that are overpowering that desire. And so this is as applicational as it gets in the Bible. The intentional thought about ordering our lives, ordering our time and our money and our schedules and our giftings for Christ. And fighting the good, faith is, fighting the good fight of the faith is knowing what to say no to, what to flee, and knowing what to say yes to and what to pursue. Defense and offense a complete approach. And this is what the good fight starting line looks like. I, I have a concern. I see it sometimes creep up in my own life that many Christians are more consumed with winning the fight in the culture than they are in their own hearts. And are engaging in a life that's so easy to criticize the culture and where the culture is going without ever taking an honest look at what's happening in my own heart, what's happening in our own church. And we touched on this earlier in the series. I won't get all into it, but I'm not saying we should never care about what's happening in the culture. I'm not saying we should never engage the culture in a way that sometimes might require a criticism of the culture and to advocate for changes, especially where marginalized groups are impacted. But our obsession with the culture 
can overpower our desires. And so maybe we need to affirm this morning also, listen, the culture can't make you do anything. It can influence you. It could test you. It could frustrate you. But it can't make you do anything. There's nothing you can do that say, the culture made me do it. Flee and pursue. Let's go to number two. We're going to move quickly here. Pick it up in the back half of verse 12. Read to 14. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Quickly, number two, how do you fight the good fight of faith? You fasten and keep. You fasten and keep. At first glance, what I just read can seem confusing. Because what does Paul mean when he says to Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called? Because that kind of sounds like it's saying, Paul is saying that salvation is up to us. Timothy, go take it. It's your work. It's your choice. Take hold of it as opposed to salvation being God's work in our lives. Well, that's not what he's saying. And that is clear when you take the rest of Scripture into account. And we don't have to go far to clarify this. If your Bibles are still open, go to chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 of chapter 1, verse Timothy, which we already saw. Paul writes this about his own story. He's saying the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So what's happening now in the conclusion in chapter 6 is Paul is giving you motivation to pursue godliness in the present by casting a vision of the future for you. Whenever you catch vision of something in the future, it motivates you in the present. He's saying God is doing a work in you. So take hold or fasten yourself to that hope to get through the ups and downs of life. This is the work he's doing in you, so take hold of it to get you through the ups and downs of life. Let me explain it this way. Uh, Schools are getting out, right? Graduations, summer vacation coming in the Northeast, and amusement parks are getting ready for the masses. Down in Six Flags, there is a ride called Kingda Ka. I have never rode King Da Ka, and I won't ever read King Da Ka, but a lot of people read, uh, have rode King Da Ka. It's the biggest roller coaster in the world, last time I checked. There's a 456-foot drop on King Da Ka. You go from zero to 128 miles an hour in 3.5 seconds on King Da Ka. If you were to go on that ride, you know the first thing that you do when you get in that car is you get fastened into place. And hear me, no one has ever come off that ride and went and boasted to their friends, I just survived that on my own. I just got through Kingda Ka. I stayed in that car on my own. I get the credit to making sure I didn't die. No one is boasting that, even the cockiest of 17-year-olds out there. No, you are well aware, coming off that ride, 
that the safety feature of that ride is the only reason you're still alive. But you know what's also true? You for sure made sure that you were fastened in place. You made sure to take hold of that which was holding you. And in the same way, no believer can boast in their ability to save themselves. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we can take hold of that which is holding us. For the times that we are going through the proverbial ups and downs of life, when your life, maybe this past week, maybe this week it's coming, when it goes from zero to 100 out of nowhere. When the 456-foot drop in your life comes, that you know that God will keep you secure through that when you can ride the ups and downs in life and he'll see you to the end. And so to everyone this morning who feels like right now you're in the battle of the Christian life, you feel it raging, it's not hypothetical for you. You feel like things are going 100 miles an hour and you can't slow it down. Let me remind you out of this text that Paul never commands something of you without providing the courage and the ability to how to do it. And in this text, he's reminding us that for those in Christ, you have been called by name. And that you are a child of God. And God is a good father. He's not fighting against you. He's not fighting against you. He is for you. Paul reminds you also that you have made the good confession. Do you see that phrase in, that, in those verses? You've made the good confession following in the steps of Jesus when he stood on trial before Pontius Pilate. The good confession that Jesus is Lord and that you have died with Christ and that you've been raised to new life with Christ. We sang it this morning, that death was arrested and my new life began. And that promise is both now and it's in the future that Jesus is not only the king who is with you, but he is the king who is coming for you. Verse 14 again, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. David Platt says about this verse, he says, Christians, we fight with our eyes on the sky. In the second book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the two towers, maybe some of you read the book, most of you have probably seen the movie. Uh, Gandalf, the wizard, is speaking with Aragon, and he's directing him to retreat to Helm's Deep. It's the place where the final battle of the second book will take place. And Gandalf recognizes the danger of that location. Their backs will be against the wall. He knows the intense fighting that's going to take place. And so before they split, before he splits from Aragon and sends Aragon, he tells him this. Look to my coming at first light. At dawn, look to the east. You can go back and read or watch that ending scene in the Two Towers. But believers in this world, we fight the good fight with our eyes on the sky. And while we are imperfect in our pursuit, we will be found fighting on the rock. Fasten and keep. Now let's finish the passage. And I love the way Paul finishes this passage because when we're overwhelmed by life and all the unknown that lies before us, he directs us to look up. Verses 15 and 16. Which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed 
and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul erupts into an eruption of praise. And likely, this is another one of the ancient hymns we've seen throughout 1 Timothy that the early church confessed together and got passed around from church to church. These confessions, these creeds that they would say together. And these are a couple of verses, and this is why I'm only going to spend two minutes on it, is that these are two verses that you can feel more than you can talk about. That his rule is universal, sovereign over all things. His reign is invincible, unmatchable as the king of kings. He is immortal from everlasting to everlasting. He is inconceivable, transcendent in every way. He is all-powerful and worthy of all praise. Behold our God. You know, here's what happens. When you look at these two verses and you see all that God is, you will revere him. But hear me. The moment that you also see that this is the same God who gave his one and only son to die for you, then you will love him. Our staff this past week had the opportunity to spend a couple days down in Ocean Grove at the shore. Thanks to generous members who provide that opportunity for us each year to recharge and spend time together and to pray and talk about the future of Grace Church. And so we had a couple mornings where we could wake up and uh, sit on uh, the new pier that's in Ocean Grove over the ocean. And at one point, I don't even remember actually who it was, uh, somebody on staff just said, you know what, now that's a view that never gets old. You just stare and look at the ocean. It's a view that never gets old. I know in my life, just staring across the ocean does something in you that you can feel more than you can even say. And perhaps you have views of God's creation in your life that you know brings up similar thoughts and emotions in you. And so that is what Paul is doing here. In his final charge to Timothy, in order to fight the good fight, it's not first about what you are supposed to do, but rather who you're supposed to behold. Fighting the good fight of the faith is not first about what you are to do, but first about who you are to behold, to look and marvel and behold our God, for he is a view that never gets old. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word, Lord. We thank you how Paul leads us to worship That whenever we are told to do something, it's never a crippling burden on our backs to do it or else. But that he lifts our eyes up. He casts a vision of what is coming and of who is coming. And that you, Lord, reign over all. And the more we behold you and see your character and your nature, Lord, we truly will not only find the motivation, but the wisdom on how to fight the good fight of the faith here and now. Lord, let Grace Church be found fighting well when you return. Let it be for your glory. Let it be for the good of others that we can shine a light into this culture and not rage against it. And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together before we take Lord's Supper.